Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. Not only is learning these things an excellent idea in this tumultuous and trying time, it might be the last tool we have left in a world completely going off the rails. Luckily, I've created a new free introductory session at magic.me. It's called Why Magic Start Here, and it gives you everything you need to know to get started. You can find it at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. There's also a free guided meditation in there. It's the same one I've been talking about on the podcast, but everything is right there for you to get started. Check it out at the top of magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. It's the first course in the course list when right when you scroll down on the page i will see you in class it's an awesome intro session all right this was an awesome podcast we tried something new in this one of course my guest is mitch horowitz who should need no introduction he is one of the most prominent and gifted writers about the occult in the world right now and he's been on this podcast many times before as well as on lots of other podcasts with people that we hang out with, like the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. Mitch has written a ton of books. He's done a ton of audiobooks. He's kind of the world authority on new thought, which is using positive thinking for manifestation, broadly speaking. I'm sure he would have a a better definition of it, but he's a great guy. So what's the new part? I decided to start talking about movies, media, and other cultural phenomenon. And what I mean by that is this is a format that I've seen other podcasts use really well. Like for instance, Chapo Trap House, which yes, I do listen to and I enjoy when they do it. Um, Where instead of just like talking at each other or talking about somebody's new project or talking about, you know, esoteric stuff in general, all of which is really fun and cool and awesome and all of that. Instead, we're just going to talk about a movie as a common touch point so that we can kind of go through the movie and and talk about esotericism through the lens of a movie that pretty much everyone knows and unpack it, talk about the deeper spiritual meanings, occult meanings, even political meanings. I think you're really going to enjoy this, most of all because what we picked is the Dark Knight trilogy, all three movies. Some of my favorite movies of all time. I'm guessing you probably like them too if you've seen them. If you haven't seen them, you're being left out. You should definitely see them. They're great movies. And there is a ton of occult material in them. And actually, like, really uh, off-the-beaten-path occult material. We're going to talk about those details in this podcast. There's tons to dig into. We could have done, I think, like 16 hours of podcast on this or more. There's so many things that I, you know forgot to include um but we got tons in here and it was a great show you can find out more about mitch at his website mitchhorowitz.com he's on twitter instagram all of the usuals as am i and you can obviously find out more about me at magic.me m-a-g-i-c-k dot m-e by the way make sure you're subscribed to the show if you're not already It's on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. All right, here's Mitch.
Okay, great. Let's talk about Batman. Let's do it. <laughs> so, there's, I mean, where, where do you even begin with Batman? So, I, I'll, I'll just kick it off. So, this is an experimental podcast. This is, uh, and, and thank you for for doing the first experiment with me. I'm super excited about this. My yeah. I, my idea here was, you know, I've, I've done so many episodes in, of just talking about magic or you know, kind of like giving the the same spiel. And I thought it would be really interesting to talk about like a touch point in pop culture, like a movie or a book that everyone knows and, and kind of talk about esotericism or whatever topics emerge from that angle. And this is something I've seen a lot of other podcasts doing, like uh, Chapo Trap House does this really well. Mm-hmm. So I figured that'd be an interesting format to try out. So So you and I went back and forth on email with a bunch of movies, movie ideas, and we settled on the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. So, how was it rewatching it for you? I think you said that you you rewatched it. Oh yeah, it was magical. I I really grew to it, and I was reminded of something, which is that there seems to be no end to the number of times that I, as an individual, and we, as a culture at large, can rewatch the Batman mythos and the Dracula mythos. Over, I, I cannot tell you the number of times I have rewatched the story of Jonathan Harker going to Dracula's castle or Bruce Wayne having, you know, the, the, the turning point of his life in a dark alley, you know, in Gotham. And something about both those stories tap a mythos so deep in human nature. And I find that whether it be uh, Nolan, of course, uh, Nolan's version of Batman is is far and away my favorite. It's hard to imagine it'll ever be surpassed. And yet, every screen treatment of Batman, every graphic novel treatment of Batman, every dramatic treatment, I rewatch again and again and again, almost as though there's something. Talk about esoteric wisdom, you know. There's something tucked away in there that represents a self-search. We're looking for ourselves within these stories or we wouldn't be drawn to them over and over. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's interesting. That's a great jumping off point. And I definitely agree. It's interesting how, I mean, first of all, these are probably my three favorite movies ever. And I've always been a massive, massive Batman fan, like my entire life. But these movies in particular, I've lost track of the number of times that I've watched them. And I think there really is something about the self-search and I think the reason that that we picked this trilogy and particularly why I thought it'd be interesting to talk about is that it's almost you could almost take it as about initiation or even left-handed initiation particularly the first movie and there's so many there's so many themes under the surface that in this movie that either were placed there by Nolan or that he drew out that have not been successfully drawn out from Batman before but I think that when you're saying that he's a self-search figure, that one of the things that I was thinking about, because you had mentioned on email that you were going back and reading the old comics. And I think that reading Batman comics as a kid, I'm sure you had the same experience. The thing about Batman that distinguishes him from all the Marvel comics and, and even Superman, particularly Superman and things like that, is that he is conceivably the one superhero that you could become if you were dedicated enough. And there's you, you really something it. to that. And and you I remember, yeah. you probably remember this too. I think p- younger people don't don't know this or don't didn't get this. But when you were, I assume you read comics as a kid, right? Oh, of course. And, and, yeah. and so when, when you and I were young, when you got comics, they had ads in the back of them 
for things like learn hypnosis, like get get boomerangs, like all this stuff. And so like you I did you, you may have had the same experience as me where it's like you go to you read the superhero comic and it's awesome and then you get to the back and you kind of have this idea as a 5 or 6 year old that it's like, you know what? If I ordered all this stuff and practice really hard, like maybe I could learn ESP hypnosis and have boomerangs and become a superhero. (laughs) And there's a wisp of truth to it. There's a wisp of truth to it, which is what's so wonderful. You know, you've laid your your hands on so many different things. I want to try to unpack uh, uh, several of the things you said, because each of these topics to me could support a, a podcast discussion in and of itself. But, you know, with respect to the Nolan films, obviously the man's a genius of writing, cinematography, direction. He cultivated great performances from the actors. He selected great actors. And yet, you know, apropos of, 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 of what it is that we find tucked within the folds of the Nolan uh, trilogy and other iterations of Batman, is this question of who put it there? Who who put it there? You know, did we, the culture, put it there? Did the artist, him or herself, put it there? Is it some symbiosis between artist and audience that results in these things being embedded there? I think we would all accept that you can take a great work of art, and I would say Batman is a great work of art. If you measure that by posterity, look at the posterity that that the Batman mythos has, not only in terms of years, but in terms of offshoot projects and the truly great artists that have been attracted to the Batman mythos, people of very diffuse gifts. You might have some figures of uh, who have a comedic gift, like the actor Adam West, or you have an Alan Moore, a completely different kind of figure who's reimagined Joker with such life and, and, and haunting verve and quality. And, and, and in a certain sense, we, the audience, participate in this because when as you were saying also, I did go back and I read some of the earliest Batman comics to prepare for our conversation. And so here you have three creators, uh, 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 Bill Finger, Bob Kane, Jerry Robinson, creating Batman, creating Robin, creating the Joker, creating Catwoman. And visually, it's really arresting. You know, you look at it and wow, you know. There he is. There's Batman. There's the Joker, the self-same figure that we know from the Nolan films. And even though some people regard Robin as maybe a campy add-on to the to the Batman mythos, I tell you, you look at those early comics and the manner in which the two of these figures stand out but also complement one another, Batman and Robin, it's really striking visually. But of course, when the story gets told in its original form, it's a bare bones story. It's a stick figure kind of story. And it gets added to and added to and added to. And yet the, I would say the archetypal themes are there, which is that Batman and the Joker are polarities. They simply yeah. need each other. You can't have one without the other. You have this grim figure of vengeance and you have this, 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 this malevolent, mirthful figure of chaos. And they're, they're, they're kind of one being. They it's can't exist like, one without like, the other. It's a bit like the magician in Fool Cards in the tarot a bit, now that, you're, now that I'm thinking about it. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, definitely. But also, I, I would say the aesthetic is there, too, in the original Bob Kane comics. I mean, they're really dark. You, you probably mm-hmm. uh, you uh, maybe re- remember that rereading them. Like, they're very yep. much, they're just as dark as the supposed kind of like Frank Miller, Dark Age, Batman, Dark Knight Returns. A- and, and Absolutely. And, and, and so they really can, are. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty, even, it, Batman has a gun in some of the original ones. You know? Right. <laughs> And even in in the Joker's very first appearance uh, is April of 1940 in Batman number one, which is significant in a certain sense because Batman had already been around for maybe a year or so in detective comics. And then he was given his own comic book because he was obviously a very popular character. And it's only then that the Joker comes in. And that's an interesting part of the mythos, too. You know, Bruce Wayne has to train, as you were saying, you know, he has to strive to become this character called Batman. And then when he's in his full maturity as Batman, that's when his polarity appears. And that's where, you know, this kind of dance macabre is never going to end because these two guys are really the same guy. Right. Really the same guy. And it's interesting in the, the, the Christopher Nolan movies, of course, they set it up for that. And they, they use that line at the end of Dark Knight. Uh, right. Dark Knight, where you know Heath Ledger says we're we're destined to do this forever, but of, of course Heath Ledger died, which made that movie all the more poignant shortly before it came out. So mm-hmm. that 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 part is removed from the the Christopher Nolan. Um, it, so so that part. So in the the thing that the thing that really I want to keep coming back to is for the Christopher Nolan movies, they actually removed that dynamic. They were s- clearly setting that up, but in yes. the Christopher Nolan movies. Instead of the Joker being the primary foil, it's Ra's al Ghul and the League of Shadows. Mm-hmm. And that, um, there are so many political levels to that. And I think that, that maybe it's that one shift. And I want to I get more, as we go further into this, I want to get more into my thoughts on that. But it's that one shift that completely changes Nolan's version of this story and makes it into something else completely. I would almost argue that the Christopher Nolan movies aren't even really Batman movies. Uh, in the sense that they're about so much and he's he is such a tragic you know the Christian Bale Batman is such a tragic figure in in those movies he doesn't actually get a whole lot of screen time in the bat suit actually it's his, right. his him as Bruce Wayne is a lot more interesting and if you actually break down his actual like action scenes in that movie i mean he does a few things in the first movie with the aid of technology in the second he kind of does the same thing but he fails and then he basically retires after the after the second movie and he's just totally right. worn out and he has to like just recuperate for seven years and he has a cane and then like he tries to do it again and he can't. So he's like a much more like physically realistic Batman instead of just like taking punishment for 50 years on end. It's just like he can kind of do a few things and then he's he's spent. You know, it's like <laughs> and, and, and that also complements an earlier point that you were making that I want to circle back to, which is this notion that. Ideally, we could all become Batman in a certain sense because he he has no special powers. He is just an intellectual and physical marvel, and he's trained. And, of course, he's also vulnerable in that way, too. So we see spinoffs where Batman is elderly. And uh, what's what was that cartoon? Um, Batman Beyond. Batman uh, Beyond, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's great. And it was not bad. It was not bad. And so we see Batman as we see Bruce. Sorry. As, a, as an elderly figure. And, you know, that's interesting, too, because obviously we see our own vulnerabilities. But to your earlier point about 
Batman being a figure who is the result of initiation and training, and then in the self-same comic books, there are ads at the back to yeah. become a hypnotist, hone yeah, your yeah. ESP abilities, you know, later on, Charles Atlas. And, yeah. and of course, these things do have a stitch of truth to them. Uh, and one of the things that I'm reminded of when you made that point is that uh, one of my real intellectual heroes is the French mind theorist Emile Coué, who died in 1926, and he was famous for the mantra, day by day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. And he really gave birth to, well, he called it auto-suggestion today. You know, we have all these different names, NLP or what have you. But essentially, Coué's program was was waking hypnosis, and he acknowledged that. I mean, his notion was that if you use these mantras in a certain way, in the so-called hypnagogic state, that's state of a very suggestible drowsiness that you experience just before dropping off. You can reprogram your psyche. And Kue himself uh, learned, first learned hypnotism. He lived in northwestern France. He ordered a mail-order course in hypnotism uh, in the late 19th century from the city of Rochester, New York, in central New York State. And that was really just a generation not even two generations before the birth of Batman. Hmm. We'll say it's a, a full generation, maybe generation and a half. And Emil Kue, who's who's who cast a very very long shadow uh, across um, self help culture, the recovery movement, motivational philosophy. He foreshadowed studies in the placebo response, neuroplasticity, and so forth. Here was a man living in northwestern France who became an amateur hypnotist through a mail order course from Rochester, New York. How very Bruce Wayne. That's you know, great. How very Batman. That's interesting. And so, yeah. you know, these things do have a stitch of truth to them. And, of course, when we see the original drawings of in Detective Comics and then later in Batman, Bruce's... Um, origin story is is told in in picture form it's all of about a page and a half there he is in the alley his parents get shot he's kneeling by his bed and he's swearing not to god but he's saying i swear on the spirits of my dead parents i will dedicate my life to fighting criminality and then we see him in a lab looking at a a, a, a steaming beaker and we see him uh lifting weights and the idea is, yes, you know, ideally, this is an initiation process. Yeah. And there's such a, as you're saying this, I'm having a lot of thoughts. I mean, one is that like, that's such like a wish fulfillment thing for like, you know, a preteen boy where it's like, mm -hmm. you know, if like, just my, if like, you know, if my parents, if just my parents weren't around telling me what to do, like maybe I would just get really angry because they wasn't, they weren't there, but they wouldn't be telling me what to do. So I would, of course, be doing push-ups and t science all day long and, and <laughs> right. just becoming awesome. No one would be holding me back and it's just like, like a kid's view of the world. But um, no, there really is something to that. And I think that definitely, at least for me, thinking back to that um, and then later in life, you know, like kind of as I had was had was somewhat exhausting my interest in comics as a teenager was when I was beginning to get interested in occult books and I think it really was coming from the same place of like looking for just like you know wacky you know literature crazy books but there was something about that of you know just the idea that you know there's a book that if you follow the program in it you could develop some type of power that other people don't have which yes. has is such a I mean for a nerdy bookish kid is like that you feel like such at a disadvantage by you know all the jocks and things like that there's just like something universal of that well it's like you know 
maybe books are my super, you know, my superpower, the thing that's going to get me ahead. And, and, but yeah, even, uh, you know, like I'm sure like you mentioned Charles Atlas, you know, the classic ad, like the insult that made a man out of Mac or the right. guy, the guy gets sand kicked in his face and then he, he orders the Charles Atlas, uh, uh, workout routine. But yeah, like, uh, but but also you're talking about mail order courses also and it reminds me how many occult mail order courses there were at the time and then the 20s and 30s including self-realization fellowship uh, amwork um boda paul foster case you know like that yeah. was a, that was yeah. a big that was a popular medium at the time yeah i subscribed to the boda teachings by mail how was uh, that when i was younger what's that how was it? i never did that but I've, I've talked to people who have it, it sounded slow and boring but how, well, how was it I, I mean i i lost my taste for it after a year or two because i started to feel as though you know, what case did and and his genius oh, <laughs> i'm hoping you have a dog is that a coyote that just ran in this is, the, yeah this is a coyote brush? yeah <laughs> no this is a, my a very well-groomed coyote yeah yeah um i i, I mean you know, Case's genius in a certain sense was that he really took the Golden Dawn teachings and he made them fully accessible in a way that perhaps Israel Regardi never did. You know, Regardi sort of swiped uh, uh, the tablets from 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 the Holy of Holies and and published them in a kind of archive form. And Case did more I I interpretive work, more application work, but they're basically Golden Dawn teachings digested for the layperson. And um, after a while, um, I tired of the material, frankly, and it had to do with a point that you were just raising, which is that very frequently we go to spiritual teachings for power. You know, we yeah. tell ourselves, yeah. oh, I'm, no, absolutely. I'm in pursuit of truth and understanding yeah, no. and um, love and so forth and so on. And once we're done with all those perfumed words, uh, I think if we're entirely frank with ourselves, and what else is the search for, if not to at least be frank with myself, uh, certainly I approach these teachings with an interest in, in power, uh, not in some megalomaniacal way, but but in, in a way that bespeaks my fullest possible capacity and agency. And I, I find that, you know, quite frankly, at, at, at my current uh, point in life, I'm, I'm 56 years old, I really do approach books with a very, very uh, deep insistence that there be something there that's quite practical and workable. And yeah. I feel very strongly about this. And, and whether it's a piece of ancient philosophy or whether it's a piece of contemporary channeling, I really do want to know if this is a teaching that's supposed to refine the individual, if this is an ethical teaching, uh, what is the payoff? And I refuse to be put off from that question. I refuse to have that question refined or changed or, 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 or manufactured into something else. No, I, I agree with you completely. I say the same thing to my students, and I don't think I think it's silly to be coy about that. Um, because yeah. I think that even people who want to be holier than thou, they, they are also seeking their own will to power in their own way and and people who are like talking about how egoless and selfless and how there's in service to others well they they are also seeking their will to power but just in in, in that way so it's better to be honest about it and I, I think that and i don't think it's bad in fact and i forget you may know about this there's i forget what it's called now but there's a whole school of psychotherapy that was around either i think in the 70s it might have been connected with the socialist patients collective that was um, connected with the Bader Meinhof gang in in Germany, but or or not, but basically, th their whole point was the root of people's mental 
dis-ease or unhappiness is not some like Freudian scene. It's, it's lack of power. And, I agree with that. Yeah, and I do too. And it's like literally, it's like if you would like to be happier, healthier, and more adjusted, like get power and money. <laughs> it solves I, a I, lot of problems. <laughs> I, I, I agree with that. And I, I realize how conditioned we are within the alternative spiritual scene uh, here in the West to reject that, to argue with that, and to, as you were saying, want to insist, no, it's about truth, compassion, understanding, service. Uh, I can't tell you the number of emails I get from people writing to me with no irony whatsoever, literally mounting an argument on behalf of non-attachment or non-identification, you know, having heard <laughs> very, me. Very attached to that. Exactly. Yeah. Philosophy seek primacy and people seek primacy. I mean, I, I, I've had people send me multiple emails, sometimes uh, quite, quite long and detailed, arguing to me how uh, Buddhist non-attachment is superior to new thought acquisitiveness. And I'm saying to myself, is there any irony anywhere tucked in, right. you know? <laughs> No, that's a really good point. And, and maybe we can seg into Batman Begins there because uh, we're talking about Buddhism now. But I think that, that uh, you know, one thing that people don't understand about the, the Buddhist ideal or the Hindu monastic ideal or for that matter, the Christian monastic ideal, which is also one of the places this idea is from, is those people were all supported by essentially slave labor societies. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, particularly in Tibet, all those monks were supported by feudal society. In India, even the wandering sadhus were expected by the society to be fed by anyone they, they went to. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Christian monasticism, also feudalism, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. Catholic Church. Hello. You know, like that, that wasn't free. So the, so the idea that they're now or that there ever was a point that people could just renounce the material all that means is it's kind of like now where people just don't want to think about where their meat came from it's like some exactly. somebody got got their hands dirty creating that bubble for that person so and, yeah 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 it's it's so fascinating the the question of where our religions come from they all have fingerprints, often dirty fingerprints, all over them, whether they're from the Vedic tradition, whether they're from the Abrahamic tradition, whatever your religious structure in the world today, it was crafted by human hands. And, you know, apropos of the whole non-attachment, non-identification theme that runs throughout uh, arteries of Buddhism that, that has certainly colored you know christianity in the west uh, these religions came out of times places cultures where the individual was almost certain to die within the same caste uh, that he or she was born in and that exiting your caste and becoming something else at least in antiquity was as impossible as walking on another planet and almost uh, literally and so people found a, a, a salvific salve for the difficulties, the tragedies, the suffering of everyday life by this notion of non-attachment to the supposed ethereal, non-attachment, I mean, I'm sorry, the supposed material, non-attachment to the physical world, and a progressive reward that would culminate in nirvana or heaven or or something that was that was that was extra physical. And of course today, um, 
depending upon what world, what society, what place you come from, you do have a fighting chance of dying in different circumstances than you were born in, however the individual defines that. Right. And I think it's enormously brave for people within the therapeutic and the spiritual cultures to acknowledge the thirst for power and to acknowledge positive power at the heart of neurosis. Um, you know, it's funny. There was a therapist on Twitter uh, maybe a year ago who caused quite a big stir. She said, I, I believe in therapy. I believe in the benefits of therapy. I'm a talk therapist, have been for a long time. But I would say what 70% of my patients really need is more money. Yeah, no, I, I, think I, I, remember, I, that's, I, I remember hearing that. Yeah, yeah. I think bravo. that might have been what I was talking about. I mean, it's and, talking about it's like, yeah. <laughs> bravo. You know, and of course, you know, all the great moral exemplars uh, on, on Twitter uh, immediately want to argue with her, push back at her, insult her, of course. Right. Um, denigrate her, humiliate her. And right. I thought, that's well, why I'm not really bravo. on Twitter. But yeah. Bravo. Someone finally said it. Well, I think it was it was I mean, no, no, but I think you really touched on it. It's just that like we, we are so lucky now to live despite all the many problems in our world, which are many. Uh, we, we are so lucky now to live in a time where technology has solved so many of the basic issues of human life. We have refrigeration. We have penicillin. We have vaccines. We have we don't die at 30. And, you know, like uh, Danny and I were talking about <laughs> yesterday, it's like, you know, it always drives me nuts when people make this uh, uh, argument about like, particularly I do this with food where it's like, well, what did the what did the uh, what did people used to eat in nature? The original hunter gatherer, like what did people eat naturally before the evil corporations came? It's like, well, uh, all their teeth fell out of their head by the time they were 17 and they died of like a, a burst appendix at like 27. You know what I mean? It's like, like, I don't think that, you know, looking to the past is going to give us, um, you know, enlightenment. And I think that so, you know, and, and I, I make this point a lot, too. It's like now 2020 is a more magical time than any other time in human history. We have it better and we have more power thanks to technology and so many other things. And just the fact that the world has been by and large outside of things like conflicts that are erupting in Eastern Europe, which is, you know, shuffling things, things a little bit. We, we largely live in a time where the monopoly of viol on violence has been successfully taken by by the state. So meaning people aren't constantly just killing each other all the time. Like we live in a pretty peaceful time. I mean, with, with obvious exceptions and people really. Um, take it for granted, I think. And all you need to do is study history just to show like how awful people's lives were. And I mean, it, it's not a surprise that religions like Buddhism happened in such a shit condition. It's like, of course you want to transcend and believe that everything is Maya and samsara and, you know, try to get it. This is, you know, it's like you, you could, you know, if I, like, as I, as I do these days, like you can get real reductive and say that religions, a lot of these religions are basically just strategies for disassociation. I think that's beautifully put, and I agree with every word you said. Um, there's so much there. Uh, I mean, first of all, of course, we as a generation, uh, as with generations immediately preceding us, forgot about, didn't care about, have no idea historically uh, what human life has been like up until very, very, very recently. Um, the writer P.J. O'Rourke, the libertarian mm -hmm. writer who died, oh gosh, maybe eight months ago, he died of cancer. Um, he said, anybody who pines for the good old days, I have one word for you, dentistry. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> yes, you know. Yeah. 
I, yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. Men and women would lose their teeth by age 17. They'd eat gruel because that's what they could, yeah. could, could digest, and that's what was available economically and so forth. And, and I mean, I, I try, I try to remember as a moral and ethical imperative that how grotesque it is to complain, you know, how fully grotesque it is to complain. I have to remind myself of that too. No, yeah, for sure. I mean, I look at the life I'm leading right now, you know, I, 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 I was at a coffee shop this morning reading some issues of Batman on my laptop to get ready for our nice. conversation. Well, fuck, I could have been sitting in Ukraine and, you know, uh, uh, something could have fallen from the sky. How dare I complain? You know, how dare I complain? And look at people in Sri Lanka who just stormed, yep. you know, the president's palace. I mean, these people literally don't have enough to eat. And I don't think that most of us in this society can even understand the physical and psychical pain that an individual goes through when they're when they don't have sufficient food. And that was a condition that our ancestors used to live with all the time, not to mention this question of violence, uh, which was always at a risk. I mean, it's shocking. You know, you look at the Roman Empire, for example, they did a lot of things right agriculturally and engineering and technologically but there was there was no police there was no police in the roman empire you could walk down the street somebody would hit you over the head and that would oh, be really? the end of that i didn't know yeah. that that's interesting. yeah yeah i mean they just you know there care. were you know, private security forces and guards and of course if you were wealthy you know you could go around with a a few guys with swords but by and large you know if you're a business person taking your wares to market there's no one to protect wow. you and and if you wow. get robbed there's a very thin court system that that, that can make any repatriation it sounds like so, i don't know the bad parts of south africa or something like yeah that. it's I like mean, that's, you can't, that's interesting what one it thing creates for, such a desperation that we don't know, you know yeah so i think here's one of my many contentions and this is interesting that we're touching on all these kind of old religions um i i have had the, i've thought for a while now that you okay well First point, I think that it's probably non-controversial at this point to make the argument that superheroes and certainly superhero movies are kind of like the new religion, new de facto global religion, right. you know, particularly Marvel <laughs> movies, right? And there's really something to that, like they're that aspirational, sounds, yeah. <laughs> they're positive, they're maybe not Batman, but you know, like they're aspirational, they're positive. In a way, they're much closer to the old pagan religions of like Rome or Greece where the mm -hmm. gods were all heroes and strong and celebrated. And, and I don't think it's a mistake that like there's people like Thor, you know, and old that all the old mythology is kind of reborn within the sure. new comics. And Loki, you know, we always forget Loki, that yeah, Loki yeah, totally. is, but we love him. And, and <laughs> like you said, we just watch the same stories over and over and over again, but it's like the yeah. stories of the gods. You just want to keep hearing it. So just to be reminded of the essence of that God and you feel maybe safer, more protected. You feel like there's a, and that there's an ideal to aspire to. And I, I think, but the more I think about this, the more I think that, you know, the real genesis of the superhero genre is, is Nietzsche mm -hmm. and is the argument that I would make. And his, you know, often co-opted and, and taken out of context idea of the overman, you know, and he says mm -hmm. that man is, man is the bridge between the animal and the overman. Um, mm -hmm. and man is in a process of becoming. And I think that that, that is the 20th century and 21st century right there. Like that statement is such a powerful statement that we are in the process of becoming something greater. And obviously the idea of Superman is directly mm -hmm. from, from mm -hmm. Nietzsche, right? The Superman, the overman. But from that, we can also see 
uh, transhumanism, we can see the the reawakening of interest in the occult as possibly a method for doing this, as Colin Wilson used to write about mm-hmm. a lot. And I think that early childhood experience of, you know, maybe I could, you know, if I just apply myself enough, I could become more. Um, that's such a healthy idea. And in a sense, it's such a better religious idea and a more adapted religious idea to our current world and a, a world with, um, you know, in which we don't need to struggle with our basic needs anymore. So now we really, the question we really have to ask ourselves now is, well, if we have in the grand scheme of things, we have a lot of leisure time, you know, like a lot of our needs are solved. What do, what do we do now? Like, who do we become? And, uh, obviously that, that question is, a you know, debated harshly across the entire cultural landscape, uh, incessantly. But I think we can, the superhero is such a, positive um expression of what nietzsche was was getting at there and i think that that really that idea for me is the 20th and 21st century much more than you know i don't know whatever other people whatever people might argue otherwise i i agree and i think that within nietzsche and it's funny i mean i i I had hoped that we would hit a point in our culture where one had to stop uh um, qual- adding historical qualifiers to Nietzsche's reputation sure. of how it's been mangled. But unfortunately, we have not reached that point in our culture. Right, right, right. And, you know, um, I, 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 there's been such a caricature and such a, a misuse of, of what Nietzsche wrote. But I think that, that he encapsulated the heart of a point that you raised earlier, which is that paucity of power, absence of power is what really lies at the heart of most of our neuroses. And I think that uh, that cannot be said often enough. And I also frequently speak in terms of self-expression and self-expression can take any number of forms, any number of forms, but uh, starting a business can be Mm self-expression, raising kids Mm -hmm. or an artistic statement or an athletic statement or whatever it is. And within the Batman archetype, of course, Bruce has a hardcore purpose. You know, he's a figure of vengeance who is going to continually act out against criminals over the course of his life. And there is a greatness in that. There is a power in that. There is a purpose in that. So the initiate did succeed. I, I, I remember a, 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 a man who I very deeply venerated uh, years ago, who's now dead, had said to me that people often think that some kind of spiritual awakening, not really language that I like speaking in, but some kind of spiritual awakening will result in there being more happy. But why would it? <laughs> you, know, you might become yeah. a more sensitive person. And if you're a more sensitive person, you're going to feel the pain of what's going on mm-hmm. among people ar- around you. And, and why would that necessarily make you uh, a happier person in some conventional sense? And, and yet I don't want to r- run away from the term happy. I mean, I, I feel like that's another of those words that gets stolen from people. You know, somebody will ask about being happy and they'll be asked, well, you know, which I within you is asking that question or something, <laughs> you know, it'll get rearranged. And I think okay. the individual has a right to that question. And I don't know whether Bruce is happy or not. He doesn't seem very happy, but at the same time, the man does have, he has, he has purpose, he has outlook, he has a point of view, he succeeded. And the superheroes, as with the gods, as with the immortals, they 
they they hold that for us. There is there is purpose. There is definiteness. One may not like every single character. You know, you may relate better to Jupiter than you do to Loki or to Hercules or Diana or whatever. But these individuals, they have purpose. Well, this is I think th- this is you know why. In my opinion, polytheism and paganism make people a lot happier than monotheism because there's all these different archetypes for people to identify with based on what either what type of people they are or how they're just how they're feeling that day. And uh, it's just a broader expression of uh, understanding of so, so many there, there's so many facets to human nature. And, yes. And, yeah. Yes. So and we hide from those facets by right. this kind of perfumed, rehearsed, catechistic language like service and love and right. non-attachment and non-identification and whenever somebody starts using those words with me or you know enlightenment a word that i never like hearing or uttering uh, i'm always on the lookout you know I, 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 somebody says no sooner does somebody say the word service to me than i get cracked on the back of my head with a baseball bat <laughs> all but literally all but literally you know? very nice um yeah well, here's okay. Let me turn this. Let me turn this around now because we've been talking about power. Here's my here's my central read of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Mm-hmm. I think that what these movies actually are, the more I've 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 seen them so many times now, the more that I've sit with them. I think what they actually are is a story about loss of power. And specifically, what I mean by that is, if you look at these movies, like so. So first of all, these are incredibly conservative movies. Mm-hmm. If you really think they're incredibly conservative, this is basically it's it's. You know, the, the sides in these movies are like, you know, essentially conservatism, conservatives and the, the extreme right are like mm-hmm. the two warring sides in the mm-hmm. Batman movies. Mm-hmm. But I think, right. you know, <laughs> I think that which is which is great is a hilarious English encapsulation of American politics, because that's basically what politics are here. But um, I think that uh, I think that uh it's important that Christopher Nolan is English and that he is also, I don't think that he's upper class, but he's certainly upper middle class with, with class pretensions. Mm-hmm. And he comes from, you know, he's a, comes from a public school background and is very educated and is, you know, dresses like an elite banker and things like mm-hmm. this. And so, so I think that, okay, a, my contention is a, that the Nolan Batman movies are a very English take, not just on superheroes, but on American politics in general. And secondly, that what these movies are actually about is the sense of loss of power of the Anglo-American elite. It's mm-hmm. about the kind of the, you know, like the Atlantis's power base of like England and the East Coast and like people as symbolized by perhaps like people like William F. Buckley and things like this, feeling that they're just losing their grasp on the world. The English empire is over, the, everything is crumbling. Uh, they're just losing control to the forces of, that they don't fully understand. You know, the mm-hmm. technology, uh, post-modernity, the mob, uh, in the second movie, China, you know, or, or terror, you know, obviously the first, the, 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 the villains in the first and third movies are meant to represent, you know, terrorism or the kind of war on terror, but even China in the second movie. And so like, one way you probably remember like so i think it's good to start begin by talking about thomas wayne is mm-hmm, the good mm-hmm. leaping off point for these movies so you probably i'm sure you remember like when you were a kid like when we were watching pbs they would always always be you know sponsored by the carnegie mellon foundation or like yes. the rockefeller foundation or, or things like this so so thomas wayne represents for me this old idea of wealth 
that we to some extent had in the US where it was kind of like in the 20s and 30s or maybe earlier or maybe later it was these kind of this i this kind of paternalistic idea that there were these like uh, philanthropist uh, industrial magnates right uh, that Thomas Wayne I think represents like the like the Carnegies or mm-hmm. the Mellons or the Rockefellers who were uh, essentially the aristocracy but that they were concerned with the welfare of the common people and they were creating foundations and they were whether that was fully true or not you know they were sponsoring public broadcasting they were this, you, you kind of see what I'm getting at here Oh, sure. I remember vividly when I was a little kid and I would watch uh, reruns of the Adam West, uh, Burt Ward, Batman TV show. And they would show the interior of stately Wayne Manor. That's what I thought rich people were. You know, I thought rich people were Bruce and Dick and Alfred and what was her name? Um, Aunt, uh, what was the aunt's name? Oh, she I, was I don't remember now. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is but you remember the character, you know, and I yeah, thought, yeah. you know, the aunt like scurrying around the mansion and Alfred, you know, bringing in a tray with a, a calling card or a letter on it. You know, yeah, I thought, don't, well, don't, that's... don't they like move like a, a marble bust uh, to, yes. to get into the back cave? Also, I, I believe it, <laughs> it, it may be the figure of Shakespeare. I'm not sure. But in any case, they take a yeah, they take a bust. They're and also they, like they, Bruce they... is also walking around in like kind of like a, 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 oh, yeah, a night an robe and things like Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Smoking jacket. Yeah, 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 thought, totally. Well, you know, uh, that's what rich people do. And, and when I was a very little kid, there was probably still a few rich people hanging around like that, you know. And uh, now, of course, they all look like Bezos and Musk and yeah, so yeah. forth. And, and they're much, much richer than than the Waynes were, you know. No, but um, that, that's kind of what I'm getting at. That, that It's that transfer of power that this movie yes. is in, in a certain extent about. I remember when I was 19, I've talked about this on the podcast, podcast before, but when I was 19, I worked at a beach club in San Diego that was for ultra, like, rich people for like, like, like actually at one point, you know, Rockefellers, I, I did my best to, uh, try it on with a Rockefeller girl at the same age as me, but it went nowhere, unfortunately. And so here I am doing a cold podcast. It's not too late. <laughs> I, so that, yeah. Yeah. If you're out there, hopefully I made an impression. Short number <laughs> right. me, but I, I somehow I don't think so. But yeah, I was making eight, I was making $8 an hour, which was minimum wage at the time. It was my first job back from college. And my job was basically to wear short shorts and bring towels to, to, uh, drunken inbred rich people and this was it's actually the same club that was featured in the movie traffic that Catherine Catherine Zeta Jones is in at the beginning of the movie Oh, I remember I remember it well. Oh, 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 oh great. Okay. So yeah, actually same same spot That's where it was yep. filmed. So but this is the type of club that you had to play You've had to pay 40 grand just to get on a waiting list to potentially get in and then it was um very uh, hard to get in and and this is by the way the same area that Tucker Carlson grew up like right down the street oh. and he, he I think to some extent is also very you know symbolic of this class I mean Tucker like Bruce Wayne when you really think about it could in a sense be Tucker Carlson <laughs> in a really twisted like, but I, in a, in a, in a, at least within the that may Nol- be the with, only time in American media those words have been uttered right, but. <laughs> but within the Nolan verse you know it's like but but yes. you see like the rage of people like Tucker Carlson Tucker mm-hmm. Carlson's father by the way used to run the voice of America uh, yes. For the CIA, right? And Tucker yes. Carlson, as a teenager, may have been involved in like coups in South America. Allegedly, he's like he's in photos like next to. Anyways, oh, is that right? Yeah, very, it's a very, very shady. But, but you see, like the anger of as expressed by Tucker Carlson, manufactured or not, he seems somewhat cynical. But you can see that as representative of this class feeling that they are losing their power. And so, interestingly enough, everyone at this club was 
from money. They didn't make mm-hmm. money. They were from money. And, and they didn't really do a whole lot other than drink and enjoy the fact that they were rich. And no one ever tipped me the entire summer except for one individual who had made his money from the tech industry. I don't know doing what, but he, he had actually, uh, he was nouveau riche. He was the yep. one nouveau riche guy. He'd made his way into this class and he was the only person that tipped me. Um, but everyone else treated him like an, a non-human. Like he didn't Why? exist to them because he had made, he he had made his money. So right. there, I mean, it's been said before. It's like you can you can get money, but you can't buy class, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. That's how this class thinks. And so this kind of Anglo, this kind of Atlanticist elite, as represented in the Batman movies by Thomas Wayne, by Bruce Wayne, by Michael Caine, right? Um, and in our world, perhaps by you know the Tucker Carlson's of the world, or in the seventies, yep. somebody like like William Buckley. Um, you know, they, they really have, they have lost their power to people like Bezos or Zuckerberg or, um, and, and more than that, the, the structure of civilization that they built for themselves has been progressively crumbling since World War II. Yes. It, well, take just, this, yeah. you know, the, the Nolan Batman movies themselves in terms of their financing provide a, a case study in in the very thing that you're pointing out. Now, the second of, of the movies, The Dark Knight, you had mentioned it involves uh, China as a villain to a degree. One of the bad guys in the movies flees to Hong Kong, which Great Britain ha- has long since ceded control over to oh, I've, uh, I had it re- China. I, that didn't occur to me, actually, the fact that it used to be a British colony. That's really interesting. Yeah, apropos of exactly what you're that saying. That never occurred to me, yeah. Right, so it was this sort of Atlantean uh, colony ceded to China, and one of the bad guys in um, The Dark Knight, of course, uh, uh, he, he, he flees from Gotham to uh, Hong Kong, and, and, and Bruce, as Batman, has to uh, uh, extract him, be said in the movie, that uh, uh, China will never... Uh, expatriate one of its own uh, nationals. Now, you could not have that said in a Hollywood-financed film today, at least not one that you you wanted to to have shown in China, which is all but necessary to recoup big budgets. Of course, uh, uh, Tom Cruise and the gang who made Top Gun managed to do it just recently, but that is a blazing exception. Although I, um, I, did, I did just see that. I noticed, I did notice that I think one of the reasons they were able to do that is because they never specify who the bad guy actually is. Yes. If you notice right. that they're just kind of generic, you know, they could be Russian, they could be Chinese. More you and more know. you see that in movies yeah. today. And of course in the Batman movies as well, uh, um, the, 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 the bad guys in the dark Knight rises, in addition to the class element, as you were alluding, uh, Kane and so forth, they're all vaguely like, you know, deep East European, central European, something right. like that, uh, you know, sort of of gypsy stock. And, yeah. That speaking and, of Dracula, that's been, that's been going on for a while. It seems. Right. <laughs> Yeah, They're yeah. appropriately, you know, uh, 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 a national, we'll say. But I would venture that, uh, okay, let's say at this point, um, uh, the Dark Knight movie is, uh, I guess, what, about 15 years old, something, something on that score. In that brief stretch of time, things have so changed that you could not have mm. a big budget Hollywood movie that explicitly had a bad guy who was a Chinese national who fled to uh, China, in this case, Hong Kong, and and Batman extricated himself fighting 
uh, Chinese security forces, removing the guy privately, etc. That brief stretch of time uh, uh, 15 years ago represents an epoch of change in terms of finance yeah, in really Hollywood. Does. Yeah, Although, There's a very good book called, uh, if I just may say, sure. Red, Car uh, Red Carpet by a Wall Street Journal reporter named Eric Schwartzel, which is enthralling. It just came out this year. And Red Carpet, uh, which I recommend to everybody, is about Hollywood financing and how it's shifted uh, in the direction uh, of of China and, wow. and how that's changed movies that's visually. Interesting. Yeah, I, from what I understand, like you, you really cannot have a big budget movie now. It, it does not have some nod to China or setting in China or characters in China. Um, and and yep. China now has the biggest middle class in the world. I mean, and this is so indicative of how the world is going as well. Um, but actually, now that you're mentioning this, the Dark Knight is the first that that scene. First of all, that scene was awesome. The base jumping scene that was awesome, particularly in the theater in IMAX. I saw it was just amazing. But now that I think about it, that's the first time that I actually saw a big movie, including a, a scene in China. Yeah, mm -hmm. a big major budget movie, and that's why it was so uh, like cool and unexpected. And it was like, and, wow, and it's the last. Is... <laughs> so savor the memory. Well, well, perhaps in that way, right? But I mean, like so many movies now include some element of Chinese actors or, or scenes in China. Maybe heroically, not, yes, heroically, heroically, yeah, right, right, right. Not not as the bad guys, as in that film. That may be the last big budget film ever uh, that uh, situates one of the bad guys in China. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I um. Okay, so so that's really interesting to think about. I mean, my so basically, my 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 read of of these movies is, you know, if you take the the death of Thomas Wayne as this symbolic, you know, killing of this generation or this period of history or this power base, um, uh, what's that? I'm sure there's what's that book by Carol Quigley, like the Anglo American. Uh, elite or something like. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Is I can't this? recall the name, but I, I know what you, he's or, talking uh, about. The, tragedy, the power. And, uh, tragedy, and um, it's tragedy and something. He was Bill Clinton's mentor, but he talks about the the Atlantis's power base. Anyways, um, but you can see in Bruce Wayne this kind of like, okay, now we actually have to become involved in history. Like we actually, like he's taking on the role of the vigilante. And in the case of mm -hmm. the Hong Kong scene is literally doing like a special operations mission. Whereas just, you know, prior to 1999, he wouldn't have needed to, they could have just, you know, gone over there, you know, right. It, it, it would it have been all very gentlemanly. Yeah. Got right. Exactly. Over. We have extradition treaties. That's that. But now, now he's got to dress in S and M gear and, you know, right, in the middle right. of the night. So, so <laughs> like, um, so, but also, so it's interesting. So there's basically these movies in my mind are a conversation about which way history is to go between the kind, kind of George Bush style conservatism or old school conservatism and the extreme right as represented by, or, or maybe not, maybe we shouldn't even say right wing, but I mean, like it just, it, it kind of extremism from outside the existing political spectrum um, from uh, Rosal, we, represented could, by Rosal Ghul, populist extremism, you right. could say, and, you and know. definitely in the third movie, which is really mm -hmm. interesting based on how things went, because I think that the third movie is is obviously is so obviously you know the elite reacting with total horror to Occupy, and it's like this is yes. in their mind that's what Occupy was, not just like a, people having a drum circle, which is what it actually was. You know, it was like, oh my god, and, and like it's Bane. You, simply, you, know? <laughs> you cannot make this stuff up. You simply cannot make this stuff up. 
some of the scenes from that movie were shot by the New York Stock Exchange in Lower Manhattan while Occupy was occurring. Oh, really? You know? Yeah. I yeah. did not know that. You simply cannot make this <laughs> that, up. That's like the perfect situation as a uh, moment. astonishing. You know, talk about life and art just folding one into the other as one whole. The, 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 it's like the society of the spectacle. It's recapitulating itself as it's happening rather than even after the fact. That's amazing. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. We're literally sectioned off streets down by the New York Stock Exchange to film The Dark Knight Rises during Occupy. That's amazing. And of course, you know, the film in its way is 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 a kind of exposition of Occupy and Gotham is taken over by this it, what ultimately turns out to be a a reign of terror style uh, mob and you, you have certain sympathies in the direction of the mob coming from Catwoman who Ultimately, is a heroic ca character, uh, coming from uh, a Bane and 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 the daughter of Rachel Ghoul and and League of Shadows. But the mob is ultimately uh, a tool in the uh, power games. Not all of which are financial; some of which are are ethical. That the characters are are engaged in, and it's it's a kind of terrifying portrait. It reminds me, there was an opera that came out years ago. Must be twenty five years ago. Um, and it was, it was, a, a, a kind of, um, what would you call it? Like a heterodox take on the French revolution. Uh, and it was depicting the forces behind the French revolution as a, an angry, a bloodthirsty uh, mob. Uh, uh, gosh, the name of it is just escaping me, but it reminded me, it was a modern opera. It reminded me of, of Dark Knight Rises because of course that's what ultimately happens in the city. So you see the old order getting overthrown and there's this terrifying reign of terror style mob. Interesting. Well, from, from, I believe that actually Dark Knight Rises is pretty much a, a, a scene for scene remake of Tale of Two Cities. I mean, specifically that's how it was constructed. They were, they were filming Tale of Two Cities as Batman. Uh, yes. And so, but they are obviously, I mean, these are very reactionary movies. I mean, like the, the, <laughs> the options that are given to people in these movies are, you know, either you maintain the status quo or you just yes. burn it to the ground. But when you're burning it to the ground, it's not from a left-wing perspective. It's like to try and like go back to the, you know, some type of Roman empire ideal, which the League yes. of Shadows is doing. Yes. So it's like, it's like, yeah, I mean like Ra's al Ghul in this movie is basically Julius Evola. Yes, you know, right. So. Uh, by the way, the opera I was referencing is Ghosts of Versailles by oh. uh, William Hoffman and uh, uh, Corigliano, John Corigliano. Uh, that came know. out in 1991 and it was, it was, it was really popular. Here in New York City, and it, 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 the the mob scenes were a lot like what you saw in, in um, Dark Knight Rises. So but, it was it was from like a reactionary kind of yeah perspective. Uh, abso absolutely, what, it was what very did, controversial. What, what what was the what was the controversy? How did people react to that? Oh, the controversy was simply that the 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 the, the, the villain in the opera was a, a great deal like Bane, this kind of avenging uh, figure who ultimately led a uh, a, a bloodthirsty mob against. Uh, a coterie of people, a coterie of, of heroes who were drawn either from the upper or lower classes, but possessed a kind of visceral nobility as opposed to this, this destructive, grotesque mob mentality, which is what you saw in the opera, which is what you saw in, in Dark Knight Rises. And it was interesting. Those, I mean, the, the movie came out right on the heels of Occupy Wall Street. And when I first saw it in the theaters, I saw those Occupy themes more pronounced, and then when I rewatched it in preparation for uh, your podcast, I, I, I tended to see the the reactionary themes 
more pronounced and the kind of mob populism. And it was it was scary to watch. Yeah, it's interesting because, like you said, I mean, a lot has changed in 15 years. And that one is is 10 years old now, amazingly. Um, but, you know, the question now is, you know, this is really at the time it clearly was, you know, about Occupy. But now the question is, is basically... You know, a lot has happened in the last 10 years, and, and now to say the least. And now the question is kind of like, is Bain Bernie Sanders or is he Steve Bannon? That you know, is like, the question. And, 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 or both. And, and there's aspects of both. There's aspects of both. And, and you know, where does Tucker Carlson you know, fit into all well, this? Uh, you see, so, like, basically, I, I could almost even be more reductive. It's almost like the Batman movies are kind of like an argument between Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson. Yeah, in a way, yeah. you know, maybe that's over exaggerating it. But well, no, this is interesting because I I think that the um, the thing that really turns me off ultimately in a person or in a movement is is cynicism. Mm -hmm. I hate cynicism, mm -hmm. and uh, Bain is certainly not a cynic. Um, he's 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 bloodthirsty. Uh, he's ruthless. Uh, but he has a point of view. He has principles that he believes in. He's willing to kill for those principles. He's willing to die for those principles. Uh, there's a horrific quality to him, but he is not a cynic. Right. Um, Bannon and Tucker, I've come to feel, yes. are cynics. Yeah. Yeah, and I knew both yeah. of them, yeah. and I was friends with both of them. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, I you got to tell this story. Oh, yeah. I think this is the only time I've ever talked about this oh, okay. podcast or much anywhere else. In my Part early twist. 20s, late yeah, early 20s. Yeah. Mid to late 20s. I was friends with Tucker. And wow. um, he was, as you might expect, an enormously likable person. He had a kind of backslapping frat boy quality about him. And he was very right wing, but not in the service of election denialism or anything of that nature. Um, he, like as today, he was a very interesting mixture of a kind of patrician entitlement, but also a regular guy, everyday, down to brass tacks, um, street fighter, you know, in a certain sense, with a great, great uh, frat boy uh, charm. And he could be very, very, very funny. We've long since lost contact. Bannon, I've known going back to maybe 2010, uh, he called me right after Occult America, my first book, Occult America, came out. And he said, and he wasn't known at the time. And he said, you know, you might, um, uh, I, I don't know if you know who I am. I'm a financier and I'm a conservative documentarian. And I, I said, well, what is it that you're grooving to, you know, in my stuff? Because I didn't know what it was about occult America that he liked. And he said, I've always been fascinated with the spirituality of central New York, upstate New York. And, you you know, the burned over district where Mormonism comes from, spiritualism comes from. And you nailed it. And, you know, we got to talking about that and we became friends. We'd never talk about politics, but we would talk about um, spiritual issues. And after Trump won, I, I, I texted him and said, you know, uh, congratulations. I'm fucking scared shitless, but, uh, you know, congratulations. And he said, don't worry, it's going to be fine. <laughs> and <laughs> I used to think of him as somebody who had very different politics from me, but who was a tough idealist. And and now I think of him as a cynic, and I don't see him that way anymore. And, and when, when the cynicism becomes apparent in a person or a movement, uh, they've lost me. So, okay, this is a big plot twist here. So, so okay, I'm still processing it. So, okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so, Bannon. So, is Bannon into occult stuff? I mean, I guess that's the most. Oh, yes. Okay, oh, yes. so tell me about that. 
Because I know well, he's, he's into Evola. Julius Evola, yeah. um, uh, Neville, um, what? Edgar Casey, uh, and you know, kind of the traditionalists, uh, Gurdjieff. Um, wow. I mean, he's very deeply read. Very, very deeply God read. God damn it! Stuff. I, I, I really, I almost don't like it when my own worldview mugs me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is just like, like everyone's like, you know, using occult techniques in a in an open, yeah, open, yeah. Well, open war. Well, he was way back. I mean, he was very interested in the Gurdjieff work going back many, many, what many the? years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's interested in just every variety of of mysticism, the traditionalists, uh, you name it. It's a, it's a topic of deep interest. And so, how do you think he? Well, okay, here's a, well, I think the best way to ask this is, how do you think that he sees himself, or at least saw himself at the time? And was there a kind of like a, an occult dimension to it? I think he sees himself as Bane, you know, to stick with the, the theme of our show. And uh, I think he sees himself as sort of an avenging angel who is going to take down those forces within our society that don't care uh, how people in Allentown, Pennsylvania feel, that don't care how people in uh, 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 Akron, Ohio feel about different social policies, uh, d- different cultural trends and habits and uh, immigration and things of that type. And, and, and yet, I also feel there's a great deep-seated um, cynicism in that because, um, uh, you know, I mean, he lives in Santa Monica. You know, I live in Brooklyn. Um, you, n- neither of us are dwelling in these uh, places that populist heroes like to pretend that they're they're representing. But nonetheless, you know, uh, we all have our affects, and I'm not going to condemn a person for that. Um, but I do want to know that a person really, truly, truly believes in something uh, from the heart. And all the election denialism stuff, I think, is it's either uh, completely cynical or it's a fraud that one convinces oneself of because it's enormously uh, convenient and helpful. Right. I wasn't he was doing his whole he was doing like a GoFundMe to actually build the wall at one point, I think pocketed a lot of I the believe money. so. And yeah, I think allegedly. he's gotten in trouble for that. Yeah. I haven't been in touch with him for the last couple of years. I mean, that kind of activity is where I absolutely check out. Yeah. And Tucker my take on Tucker, obviously I've never met him, but my, my take on Tucker, and I'm curious what, what yours is, is that he, he's he's a media professional. You know, he, he's he's oh, just doing what what is getting ratings. He's so smart. You know, and, and I, 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 I say the term smart in the narrowest crap, way. Yeah. You know, but I remember um, when Tucker was in his 20s, he was writing and he was getting asked to be on TV shows more and more as a, a pundit, a panelist. And he would say outrageous things sometimes, and you would think, oh, Tucker's going to get in trouble for this, and then he'd get invited back twice as much, yeah. and he learned from that. Yeah. He learned yeah. from that. No, he, he knows how to, yeah. how to... You know, he used to be, a, or still is, a deadhead. Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, he, he I, so, somehow... He, somebody had them on their, like, synthesizer podcast on YouTube, and they were talking about synthesizers. He was talking about how he used to follow the Grateful Dead, and he saw them, like, 50 times. And it was just like, the, 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 the universe is a, is a joke. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. What, what is going on? <laughs> well, you know, he's also uh, smart enough to know how to play against type, too, you know. Oh, so oh yeah. If, if yeah, Tucker's a deadhead or if Tucker's this, you know, he can he can play against type. But he is almost like I view Tucker like the greatest uh, professional wrestler who ever lived. You know, he knows exactly what to do and exactly yeah. how to play to the camera. And there's a certain degree to which it's in, it's instinct. It, it can't be learned. And he possessed it very, very early on. Interesting. Yeah. 
Wow. Okay. Interesting plot twist. Uh, well, well, okay. F fascinating. How did you end up meeting we, these? We could do, how did do you end up meeting Tucker? Yeah. How did you um, end up meeting Tucker? Well, you know, for a couple of years, I worked at a, a publishing company called the Free Press, which at, at that time was a kind of a right wing press. And um, we had mutual friends that he wanted to do a book on law enforcement. And um, so we kind of got together around that. It never happened. It, it wound up never, never fully coming together. But uh, that's how we became friendly. Interesting. Yeah, it was very early on. I mean, I was probably about 27, 28 years old. He was probably about 25, 26. Wow. Yeah. So interesting. It's a small world. Yeah. Small it's world. weird. That is weird. <laughs> and, um, we haven't... Uh, we haven't been in touch for a very long time, but huh. you know, he made a very indelible impression. And I remember early at that time, there was a coterie of these young right wing guys who got a lot of media attention because what was it? I think, um, oh, I don't know. Maybe it was around the, the, it was just around a period of time where like the intellectual right was rising and people in the media thought, oh, I need to pay attention to this or I need to have one of these guys on my editorial page or on my show. And uh -huh. of okay. all the people that were rising at that time, he just had this charisma and this sensibility, um, which again, I think there was an innate, there was an innate talent, which he has continued to hone. Interesting. Yeah. And, and rewatching Dark Knight Rises, it's really interesting to watch it from the lens of the rise of that, whatever that is, that kind of intellectual right. I don't even think it's the alt-right at this point. It just, mm -hmm. but more the Tucker end of things, but that the, a, the extent to which they use Bane as a symbolic touch point, mm -hmm. including, as I'm sure you remember, that Bannon somehow got a Bane quote into Trump's acceptance speech. I don't know that. Do you remember no. this? Yeah, no, there's a part where like when Trump gave his, I know it's like when I saw this, I was like, holy shit. His, his January 20th presidential ex acceptance speech, there's a point where he says something, he says something like, I now I give it to you, the people, or something like oh, this straight out of wow. Dark Knight Rises. And I believe Bannon wrote the speech. So there's like stuff from, from Dark Knight Rises in Trump's acceptance speech. Fascinating. And, and, and I know, right? And I think that Bannon himself was kind of wearing the kind of like Bane the like the dingy yes, pain coat the as combat well. jacket yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. totally I, I realized with that speech that things were not going to be okay uh, all, <laughs> yeah, all notions yeah. that things were going to be okay as steve had reassured me i was disabusive with that speech because i thought to myself it was a grotesquely out of touch speech like in, in the sense that you know in that speech trump and 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 maybe steve wrote these lines for him talked about how we're going to take back our cities well at that particular time uh, things have changed since then but at that particular time uh, crime was still dropping in cities all across america whether it was miami or philadelphia or new york or what have you uh, nobody who dwelt in cities at that time felt like, oh, boy, we're really going to hell. Now, you know, post-lockdown right. and so forth, there are renewed problems. But back then, um, things were going just fine. And I thought, where's this rhetoric coming from? This is like early 1970s stuff. And it was yeah. veiled racial stuff. I didn't yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I yeah. think so. But although it is interesting, I think... Um, it, taking Dark Knight Rises in context for when it came out, I mean, it came out... In 2012, it was the end of the first Obama administration, mm -hmm. and things were pretty good. Like things yeah. were pretty much great in 2012, <laughs> and the the main, the, you know, it was actually pre. Interestingly enough, that was pre Snowden, and the second Dark Knight movie uh, talks about the day. They basically either predicts or maybe it's predictive programming. They talk about you know the cell phone spying 
in the second movie and having a net that spies on everyone's cell phones. And then it, that turned out to be true in 2013, but dark, uh, which was very like, like probably sinisterly prescient. Um, but the, the dark Knight rises was even pre Snowden. So it was kind of like, you know, what was like the worst thing that had happened in by 2012 in the Obama administration, like Benghazi or something like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like not a whole lot going on. Things were pretty awesome. Everything was just fine. Right? Yeah. And, and that's pretty much like the status quo you get at the beginning of that movie. And then all these forces erupt, which again, presciently, even if it's a comment on Occupy, it's like they, they presciently, um, you know, very much, well, I, I wouldn't even say predict. I mean, there's a certain magical element. I mean, we know that that movies inspire people in a mass way. And, and so the, the populist movement that came with, with on both sides of the spectrum, but particularly, I mean, you can see like Trump, you can see January 6th in there, things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. I was yes. reading, but, but there's definitely an element of, of you know, symbols do uh, uh, have a, a creative effect on reality, you know, as we both know. Well, well it's, it's fascinating. Yes, yes. You know, people pose the question rhetorically, what is art? And I have no, you know, I have no idea, but I'm sure that elements of, of what we call art include posterity, which I was alluding to earlier, and they also include something that tells the truth, the truth about the human story, the human situation. And it, it doesn't matter if it's fictional. It doesn't matter if it's so if it's non-fictional. I mean, you know, coinciding with or just preceding the Snowden revelations, we have all of this laid out in a dramatic story in the second of the two Nolan movies, concurrent with Occupy, preceding January 6th, we have the whole story of a kind of mob uprising led by a populist leader, and we're not sure. Is it Steve Bannon? Is it Bernie Sanders? Is it a mixture of both? You know, <coughs> excuse me, I heard, I've heard Steve say, Nice things about Bernie Sanders, you know, by the way, I have no doubt if he needed to for political reasons, he would attack him. But, you know, in private, he kind of likes the guy. So, oh, interesting. It, it, well, I think yeah, they, they yeah. praised him in public, too. But I think that there was a real effort to to, to bring over disaffected Bernie voters. Without At, question. Yeah. So, Without question. Yeah. yeah. And so, I, I, I mean, all of this is reflected in that movie just in the same way that the horror of warfare is reflected in Picasso's Guernica. You know, of course it's hmm. impressionistic, but it's there, it's real, it's the truth. And these movies are the truth. Interesting. Uh, but way in advance. So it's either, it's like, like, it's like, what do we make of that? Either, you know, three options. A, artists pick up on things in advance. B, um, th these led, these inspired later movements. Or C, uh, it's predictive programming by the CIA. But, you know, it's like... Or extreme idealism, you know, <laughs> or, yeah, uh, yeah. of the Neville variety. And they're probably all true, you know. I right. Mean, you know, we have this kind of uh, malady in our society where we think that there's one magic bullet. There's one answer. And, of course, it's probably a complexity yeah, of things absolutely. that are all true. Yeah. So... I have I, I I watched these movies so many times to the point where I started thank you so much. I started kind of playing mind experiments where I think let's so let's let's actually well before we do that let's let's pull it back to the pure initiatory aspects of the, these movies um, instead of the macro politics. I I remember seeing Batman Begins in the theater right after I came back from Kathmandu doing shamanic training in the Himalayas. And I saw this movie in the theater in New York and I thought it was like about my life. 
Um, it was like it was like somehow like this is like they picked up on my astral trail or something like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, it, but it was so I was so blown away by it. I mean, obviously, you know, I've been obsessed with Batman my entire life, but this movie in particular was about left-handed initiation, and and I think yes. that in, to point out. Um, a bit of context historically, I think Batman Begins pretty much flew under the radar. I don't think it had that much of a cultural impact and people had pretty much forgotten about Batman and they because the last thing they remembered with it was Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, which were the ultra campy uh, versions in the 90s, which I ironically kind of put the Nolan movies in the same place that the early Tim Burton movies were in because people only remember the TV show. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, and, and on a side, lo- a side note, have you rewatched Batman and Robin recently? Uh, the movie? Yeah. Not recently. I recommend no. it. It's actually really, really good. Okay. okay. <laughs> like everyone remember. <laughs> did you ever see it in the first place? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, like, it, like you remember it being like this unbelievably camp... Just ridiculous, like Disney ride with like Arnold Schwarzenegger saying, you know, like what killed the ice, uh, what killed the dinosaurs, the ice age and like things like that. (laughs) Right. And, uh, you know, there's nipples on the bat suit. There's a Batman credit card at one point. It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's just like ridiculous. But honestly, I watched it again recently and I had so much fun because there's like, there's nothing dark in it. There's nothing cynical. It's pretty much just like, you know what? It's the '90s. We're all on MDMA, and everything's awesome. Right, right. I mean, need to <laughs> like, rewatch this tonight. I, like yeah. everyone's. Just I usually act on things very quickly when I get turned on. So. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I recommend it. It's like okay. there's like no. It's like the anti-dark Batman. It's like everyone's just like really relaxed in that movie. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, yeah. like uh, George Clooney is just wearing a turtleneck, like hanging out. You know, it's I, like... I remember that vividly. You know, I mean, half the scenes, George is just having some scotch by his yeah. fireplace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what actually happened? here <laughs> yeah so. and it's just like it's it's just like it's it was like really heartwarming in the ways like every superhero movie now needs to be like over the top realistic and all that and that's not new yeah, yeah. but you know it's like it's just like it just had this like warm 90s nostalgia of like oh yeah there actually was a time in my life where things were pretty good <laughs> like like the world was just at you're reminding me like, of 2012 i'm just now i'm playing yeah, no yeah i know days. totally right like, like let's see what were the problems then you know, know not enough right? bike paths yeah know? totally you know, it's like things aren't sustainable enough. Uh, you know, like gay marriage had already, you know, gone through. Uh, what right, else? Right. Uh, I mean, buy dr- weed. You know, yeah, yeah, totally. Legal, right. It's okay. And I was in L.A. too, so it was just like, you know, like yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, so, I remember your place in L.A. Oh yeah, that's right. Well, that was later. <laughs> yeah. I think that was like that was later. That was uh, uh, yeah, that that was the Trump years. But um, yeah. but well, um, I do want to yeah. say uh, I, I want to say a word of tribute to um. Uh, Adam West and Burt Ward, the actors who played Batman and Robin on the original TV series. It's really amazing that, I don't know if this is generational or not, but however many iterations of Batman we have, everybody, it seems to me, still remembers those guys. And maybe because they were first, but I also have to believe because there was something just extraordinary about their performance. That was an awesome show. They were great actors. Do you remember the movie they did also? Where they Bigger? have? Do you remember the movie they did also? Where they oh have the, sure they have the shark they have the shark repellent in the helicopter. Right. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. <laughs> I have um I have a funny story that uh, Adam West told in his biography, which is very rare. Years ago, I had urged a uh, a publisher to reissue it. They never did, and I bought a copy for about eighty dollars, and it was well worth it. He told a fascinating story in there where. Um, 
these guys would have all these staged fights and um for 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 Bruce for Batman uh they would always have a stunt double of course and and he would wear a cowl so it wasn't too much trouble getting a, a stuntman in there but um but Burt Ward who played Robin uh, would always get the shit kicked out of him. And he said it was really very common after shoots that Bert would have to be taken to the emergency room. And oh. they, they always, the producers always told Bert, well, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, Adam's character wears a cowl, so it's easy to put in a stunt double, but your guy only wears this thin little mask, so we really can't get a stunt double. And, and Wes said that he came to feel later he later learned, he later learned that these guys, these two actors, were getting paid so little for the show that actually the scale rate for unionized uh, stuntmen cost more than it did to pay them as actors. And he thought just to save a few bucks, they were throwing Bert into the lion's den and so forth. And rather than hiring a stunt double, they would hire, they would have Bert just get the shit oh, kicked no. out of him scene after scene. That's so rough. poor Bert Ward, who played Robin, was actually going to the emergency room not infrequently after many episodes so take that method actors. you know i mean this guy was actually in there doing it speaking of which do you know about burt ward's autobiography uh i've read a bit about it here and there yeah you know I've the whole you know the whole like deal with it though right like yeah 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 so, uh, so you say it well <laughs> right yeah. you're the host you well have. i actually when, when the first batman movie came out they had a batman convention in san diego at the scottish right center uh that i went to and it was like like i don't know it was like 50 people or, or something oh, like is that. that right? Yeah, but uh-huh. Burt Ward was there and he spoke, and and so I I, I saw and I was like I think it was like eight or eight, but uh, yeah, but that was like an awesome moment. But Burt Ward's, from what I understand, I, you, you got to look this up because it's been a while. But uh, Burt Ward's autobiography, I forget the name. I think it's been long since memory hold, but it's pretty much he was saying it's like you know like at the height of the swinging sixties. Like yes. him, him and Adam West were doing a, a lot of tag teaming, shall we say? Yes, uh, yes. I and and it's, that. Yeah, it yeah. sounded very much like if you remember that movie Autofocus. Oh, I did, I've never seen. That. Oh, oh, it's a really disturbing movie about um, the guy that played the captain in Gilligan's Island, becoming like an, this, and apparently he was just this massive swinger in the the end of the '60s. But it, and it just like. And him, and he, but it's him. I forget who who he plays, but Willem Dafoe plays this kind of like guy oh, that latches on. Hogan's to him. Heroes. It was the Hogan's Heroes guy. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes, I did see that. That's a very good movie. It's really, yeah, it's very yeah. good. It's super disturbing, but it's like, it's like, it's. I think it was pretty much similar. I mean, very they, they, disturbing. They were, and Dafoe is brilliant as usual. Yeah, 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 definitely. He's so creepy in that movie. But um, I think the Adam West Burt Ward scene was probably pretty similar. They were uh, very successful about town. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. Well, uh, West in his biography, which is fascinating reading, uh, I think it's called Back to the Batcave, he said after the show was canceled, he made a movie, which didn't go well, and then he spent a year just like partying and sleeping around, and he said it really it really hurt me, it really hurt my career, wow. you know, and then I was desperate to get back into things, but by that point I was already a nostalgia guy. Hmm. Wasn't he in like Adam's 12 or something like that? Like he was in cop shows after that? He was that? supposed to be. He, he shot apparently what was considered a very, very funny pilot for a procedural cop show, and it didn't get picked up and he did uh, some voiceover stuff and then it was only much later in life that he began to do voiceover stuff for um what was it uh family guy and oh, okay. and, and and some related shows but he was one of the great comic actors yeah, yeah. still he remember was, him. he I was mean, great look, look how we're talking about him yeah so totally he was great yeah. and he was um, great. 
Did you see that the the, new, the Tarantino movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Oh sure, yeah. Uh, that, one that of my was, favorite movies. I've watched it obsessively. It was great, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I keep seeing myself in it. And I keep oh, watching no. <laughs> it over and over and over. It's like you with, you know, Batman Begins. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I I really like that movie. I honestly, felt like yeah. I felt like that movie. Tell me what you think. But I feel that that movie was kind of like this revenge on. Hollywood going it was basically a revenge Absolutely. on Charles Manson and it's like what what if that had never happened yes it was a revenge bad. on the hippies it was yeah. a revenge on Altamont it was a revenge on Manson and part of Tarantino's genius and there are so many different facets to his genius but he recognized that some of these sitcom actors and action heroes from the 1960s were actually really really brilliant and you know some of them uh with names like Steve McQueen and Charles Bronson got breaks and some of them didn't get breaks, but, uh, the Adam Wests and, oh gosh, what was his name who played the green Hornet opposite Bruce Lee for that one season? Oh, oh, I remember. Uh, I don't remember. Ward something. His name escapes me, I'm afraid, but some of these guys were really quite wonderful in their way. And Tarantino has also brought some of these guys back. Yeah. He brought back Kurt Russell. He brought back John Travolta. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Pam Greer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, you know, I mean, movie. he got it. He got it. Totally. I like. Yeah, I, I, I really, really, really like that movie. Also, um, yeah, he really, he, he just knows so. Like he's, he knows so much. He knows so much. He's kind <laughs> of like, the, like he's a single-handed <laughs> archivist of all of these, these, all of this stuff that is just going to be lost to history otherwise. Yeah, um, so. So with Batman Begins, so so yeah, it didn't make that much of a cultural splash. I remember it kind of came and went, and people. But it, I was so impressed by it simply because it was the best way. And a lot of people have tried to answer this, but it was the best attempt I had seen to answer the question of what would Batman be like if he was in real life, which makes it even more exciting because then it becomes even like more attainable. And for me, the tri you know, the cherry on top was the fact that it's like, well, he goes to essentially Tibet to undertake esoteric initiation. I was like, this is awesome. Like right. this is, this is great. Um, and so, but not just some type of, you know, uh, it's like that it, you can almost, uh, take this movie as, a riff on Lost Horizon, if you've seen that or you're familiar oh, with course, that. Oh, yeah, like that, that's a, a great one. But he goes and he, he it's a left-handed initiation. It's yes. not an initiation into some greater spiritual, you know, higher level. It's an initiation into fear and dealing, yes, and and dealing with his own fear. Bruce yeah. has a goal. He goes and he he fulfills his goal. You know, it's, it's very much an act of, of, of personal seeking. And you personal know, not overcoming. Is, yes, personal right. overcoming. The, the Bruce whole, has a point whole, of view. He, he wants to take vengeance on, on criminals for his parents' death, and and he sets a bar for himself, and he meets the bar. It's it's very it's very left. -hand. It's very powerful, and it's but it's it's the goal that he has to attain is overcoming his own darkness, and it's not or or not even overcoming. It's like becoming one with it, and that is very it's definitely very different than a lot of movies where you have the dark night of the soul not in dark night mm -hmm. right but dark night of the soul sequence where there is a nod at some point where the hero in their right-handed initiation has to face their darkness an example being empire strikes back where he's mm -hmm. training under yoda and then he has to go into the cave to face his own shadow for right. bruce wayne that's the whole point 
You right. Know, it's like the whole thing is the dark side of an initiation. And, uh, and, and, and apropos of that, at a certain point in the movie, at the culmination of his mentorship under Rachel Ghoul, Rachel Ghoul says to him, Bruce, your father was weak. You know, mm-hmm. he failed to protect you. He failed to protect your family. And the audience member is left to ask him or herself, well, is that fair? Is that not fair? But it's a very challenging point of view. That's a great point. And the, the, I think that probably we can make the argument of like, you know, like, is that a fair question to ask? It, it actually doesn't matter, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like, mm-hmm. well, ultimately it's true. And, and yes. it's like, you know, like is, well, I, I mean, I hate to be, be like this about it, but it's like, is life fair? Like, no, right. no, right? Like, was that situation fair? No, but he still was too weak to do anything. And, um, and Bruce is, you know, again, is, I mean, again, if you take him as this kind of scion of, a fading empire, you know, he's, he's going to extremes to become some type of, of avenging force for it. But he's also having to overcome the, the inherent weaknesses of his own group that led to its downfall. Uh, That's beautifully put. Yeah. Beautifully put. And it's funny that you said, I think your observation is very good that when Batman Begins first came out, it wasn't a cultural force. No. You know, it was an okay movie. It was a lunchbox, but it wasn't a cultural force. And I remember, um, now you've said to me, you returned from um, great efforts in Kathmandu, and you looked at this movie, and you felt there was a quality of self in yeah, it. You yeah, felt yeah. that there was a mirror. I remember at the time there was only one other person who said to me that he derived a certain meaning from the film, and that was the uh, scholar of religion, Jacob Needleman, who had okay. seen the movie with his wife. And he said to me, have you seen this movie yet? And I said, no, I plan to. And he said, oh, you really must see it. I mean, they really bring a, a mythical edge and quality to this movie. And he was the only one who had sort of talked about that at that time. And now, of wow, course, that's so really a, surprising to me. Yeah, it was okay. Well, maybe it was just too much for people. I think that because the thing about that movie also is you don't even see him as Batman. Well, a you don't really even see him as Batman until near the end of the movie. And when you actually see him as Batman, he's pretty much in the darkness and you can't really see him. He's just kind of like flashes moving around. Um, And it's much more about it's more about Bruce and the central theme of fear. You know, there's the fear of the bats when he falls down in the beginning. There's the fear that he has to overcome by inhaling the, the blue Lotus smoke. Yes. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever actually taken blue Lotus. It's actually no. a real drug. It just makes you feel really no. relaxed. So, you know, no, really? it's, it's not a fear so. drug, but uh, <laughs> it is a real drug. Um, but, but then it, of course, then that's weaponized in through the, the figure of the scarecrow and is yeah, you know, used yeah. as gas throughout throughout. So so then he has to overcome fear for others. Right. After yes. overcoming his own. Um, so in a way that that's my favorite movie of the three. But yeah. And, but I remember when the dark even when the Dark Knight was announced and was coming out, like people weren't really that hyped for it. Mm-hmm. But it was right. I think. I, unfortunately, it was the death of Heath Ledger that put a lot of uh, attention on that. And then when it came out, it was like the new Star Wars. Um, yes. But, but that yes. first movie flew under the radar. And, and possibly it's just too, uh, it's too philosophical. I don't know. But the other movies are too. Um, so here's, here's my, my other controversial statement. So there's a way that you can watch these movies where you can almost take all three movies as a left-handed initiation or a dark side initiation. And the way to do it is you watch all three movies, assuming that Bruce Wayne is the bad guy. 
<laughs> and and so here's what I mean by this, right? It's like, yeah. and, and that Ra's al Ghul is actually the good guy. So mm-hmm. basically, you have so you have Bruce Wayne as this as this kind of representative of this crumbling empire, uh, and you have Ra's al Ghul's like as you pointed out, it's like you know Bane is an is an idealist. He actually has a point of view, which is Ra's al Ghul's point of view, which is you know society has become too corrupt, and it has to be. He, he's an accelerationist. It's like we have to accelerate its decline so that we can uh, sweep, you know, we can basically sink Atlantis and start over. Yes. Right. Which is an extremely esoteric point of view. Yes. I mean, this is a whole esoteric school of thought, let alone political thought. And, and, and one that would become more prevalent after these movies came out and was completely unknown at the time. But the, I mean, it is the argument of traditionalism in a way or of, or left or right accelerationism. Um, and, you know, again, it's like basically, you know, Liam Neeson is Ra's al Ghul, or excuse me, is uh, Julius Evola in, in this movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you have, but you, you basically they have their plan. They end up initiating Bruce, which is perhaps a mistake because they think that they can use him because he has connection. They, they, they know who he is and they mm-hmm. think they can use their connections to um, his family. And I, I think it's pretty funny. It's, it's funny. They make the point like even early on in the first movie, they pretty much make the point that Bruce Wayne is pretty much George Bush in a, uh, in a bat suit. And, and the, the, the scene that I'm thinking about is he makes this, he, or is kind of, I think, or at the very least is there's a bit of an element of like, you know, in, the English laughing at, at Americans in that where they have this whole thing where at the end of his initiation, he's supposed to kill, a thief. Mm-hmm. Remember this? And he won't sure. do it. And he sure. has, he's principled. He's a principled American. He's like, no, you know, like I use violence, but you know, I won't, do, I won't do it. Uh, and then in order to not do it, he ends up killing everyone in the entire monastery by blowing it up. Do you remember this? Right. Yes, of <laughs> so, course. Of course. To refuse having to kill one person, he ends up killing like 60 people and right. they like never talk about it. And it's just like, oh, well, he was the good guy. So, you know, it's like, it's like very, there's something about American interventionism there. It's true. And it's fascinating. I've heard the same analysis, of course, made of the Karate Kid movies, but, but, but these, these, I I have entertained that thought experiment of watching these movies and asking myself, what if the Joker, Raish and Bane are in fact the good guys? And of course, Batman with all his principles is a lot like me sitting here with my, you know, Mac Airbook open, you know, talking to you. Now, you know, I'm going to uh, uh, give lip service to all kinds of wonderful things. I'm going to bicycle later over the Williamsburg Bridge to save gasoline. And then when my MacBook is dead and it's time to get a new one, I will throw it away, not really knowing or, or viscerally caring where it's going. And of course, it's going on a garbage barge to a garbage dump somewhere in Sri Lanka or Bangladesh or maybe the Philippines. And it's going to, there's shit from the battery that's going to eventually sink right. into groundwater. And I'm doing that. And it was likely, you know, so how made, am I different it was likely made with slave labor in the first place. Very likely yeah. made with slave labor. You know, I'm recommending people go out and read the book Red Carpet because it tells the hard truth but you know for all i know the book was probably printed in china you know and 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 so i'm bruce you know in a certain sense i won't kill this 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 thief i have a heart but i'll just destroy everything else in the entire right. edifice that's sustained right 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 and i i think and i think there maybe i'm reading too much into it but i don't think so I, I think that this is this is to some extent like an english comment on on americans and and for instance 
you know, like the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. Of course, right. That's sentimentalism, right? It's, it's a sentimentalism, yeah. Like, or yeah. the compassionate yeah. conservatism, you know, of, of George W. Oh. Bush, um, and. But Bruce really sees himself that way. So I think if you look at this, it's like, so, so Ra's al Ghul has this, you know, you know, it's an extreme but workable plan that he's, they've spent, the right. secret society has spent thousands of years. <laughs> and, and to help hear him tell it, it's like, you know, it's like he says it, he says at one point, like we sank, you know, we, we sacked Rome, you know, we brought the plague ships into Europe. It's like, we've always been here. We're basically you know, the, the Illuminati and, and, uh, you know, we're, we're the ones, we're the adults. We're basically a traditional, traditionalist secret society. We're adults. We lurk in the background and we wait to, you know, essentially correct the, the, we, we see, you know, humanity as children and we need to correct them when necessary so that everything, so that ultimately everything is not destroyed. Right. right. And so, and so, so, so the, and they're basically just speaking from a position of like, well, this is the course of nature and it has they're to They're speaking to from away. a true karmic position. Yes. I mean, in a yes. certain sense, that's the, the impersonal nature of karma Yeah, and it's, and it's defensible on those terms. Of course, Bruce and, 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 and me, we speak in a sentimental position of, well, there's good in everybody, but right, of course right, I'm right, the guy right, who's right. going to go throw out his MacBook later. You know? <laughs> no, so. totally. Right. Or it's like you hear about, you know, it's like, it's like, but it's like you hear the patronizing way that like, for instance, George Bush talked where it's like, you know, it's like, well, they're the bad guys and they hate us for a freedom or I don't know if you've ever listened to cops talk or soldiers talk where they, they all use the phrase good guys and bad guys. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a point there, there is something about when you're in that position that you really do have to compartmentalize and dehumanize the other side, or you just can't do your job. But mm-hmm. you know, there's something very American about that. It's like, well, you know, they're, they're the bad guys. Yes. And it's like, well, yes. you know, like I used to watch Saturday morning cartoons too once. Right. It's like, this is just like not a realistic <laughs> view of the world yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, but you don't, you don't just get that with, Republicans, you get that with Democrats as well. You know, the, the idea that Republicans just represent existential evil and that we're good and they're bad. Or you hear Biden or Pelosi or, you know, so many people mm-hmm. talking about, oh, we need to appeal to the, the better angel angels of our nature. And it's like, yes. what what does that even mean? Yes. You know what yes. I mean? Like, it's just like we're good and they're bad. I mean, I, I think enough said about that. But um you know, but you're you're right. They have this. They have a very Eastern traditionalist or just Eastern, you know, perspective where they're just essentially we're just agents of karma. We just need yes. to make we're 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 gardening here. We're we're tending the garden. We need to make sure that the whole thing doesn't it doesn't collapse. And so they initiate Bruce because they think they can use him. But then he spends the next three movies just like getting you know ruining all their plans. Right. It's like he ruins their plan to sack Gotham. <laughs> You know, and then like, you know, then they're like, all right, then then they send Bane and he like ruins that. And it's right. and then it's like and then at the end, you're kind of left with, OK, well, I guess it's OK now. Oh, and then he just like goes on vacation in Europe afterwards, you know, and then so it's like forever. And, and, he, and he just like tells like the working class kid like, OK, you do it. And then yeah. like he just like goes to like drink martinis in like Rome or something. Uh, and it's kind of like. Uh, which is very much like, you know, like George Bush, you know, painting after his uh, presidency or something painting. like that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, and it's it's kind of, at the end, you're kind of like, OK, so, you know, what is it just going to keep getting worse now? Is it like like they were going to like fix society? But, you know, like Bruce Wayne could not get over his own ego to think like, well, no, but I'm the good guy. And that like him, like just like America, it's like him needing to be the guy with the the white cowboy hat like no but i'm good 
it just like led to the complete destruction of everything potentially, you know? Right. And, and ours may be the last generation. I, I really don't know. It, 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 these things may have more cultural tenacity than I realize, but ours may be the last generation that's able to see America as, uh, the guy in the white hat, always Maybe. good. Sure, we make mistakes like Vietnam, but yeah. you know Ronald Reagan will come along and help fix that. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I think maybe we have lost that now. I think you're right, uh, and that's that's <clears throat> it's disturbing. Well, I think you know. No, I think you're right, and I remember that. You know, I remember the '80s. It was kind of like you know people didn't necessarily like Ronald Reagan, but it was like it was like. You know, yeah, the, the 80s were awesome. He's not you know? so bad. I know, exactly, you know, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it kind of was, but, you know. Uh, but right. it's like, like, you were talking about Top Gun, Top Gun, excuse me. You know, it's like mm -hmm. I just saw that a couple days ago, and I was like, this is awesome, because it was like, it reminded me of how great that felt in the 80s to just be like, you know, it's a total lie, but just feel yeah. like, okay, like, we're Americans, we're the good guys won, like, we're in mm -hmm. charge, and we're awesome, and we're playing volleyball with our shirts off on the beach. Right. It's dope. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, it may be that, that that we've seen the end of that now. I, I, I really don't have. know. Uh, it's very hard to tell what page is going to turn. It's very hard. And, you know, the truth is, a, a lot changes in history just because a charismatic figure comes and goes. Uh, uh, you know, Trump is still on the scene. Trump may not be on the scene tomorrow, and if Trump is not on the scene tomorrow, then all kinds of different things could happen. It's 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 astonishing the extent to which history is made by sometimes the presence of just a certain square jawed figure, whether yeah. it be Franklin Roosevelt or Ronald Reagan. Yeah, and and uh, or Trump in his, or Trump. you know in a, in a negative way. And I think that yeah. um, that that for me was you know the the biggest lesson of the Trump period, which is basically the the point that is made with Bain and things like that is how much one person really can tremendous you know because prior like i'm sure you remember it's like prior you know the idea that trump was going to win was unthinkable because the attitude was like oh well it's all fixed obviously hillary's going to win they're not going to let you know it's like they have everything controlled this was post snowden post drones all that it's like come on you know they're just putting this guy up to make hillary look even better and then it's like oh no yeah. No, no, no. Something else is going to happen. And I remember, I vividly remember lefties rejoicing on Twitter when Trump was running as if to say, yeah. oh, my God, this is going to be such a shit show for these guys. And, of course, nobody had any idea that he would prevail. But that was like, what, 20... 16 this is eight like yeah. eight like what six years ago now so well but, it was a the, tense the, time also it was a tense time and the greater point is that it, it, it is really astonishing the extent to which a single individual can be responsible for entire epoch of things going on i'm not sure we would have had uh the new deal or any such thing if 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 franklin roosevelt hadn't be been who he was uh you know uh, likewise reagan who he was likewise gorbachev who he was you know these figures there, or you know, Putin in the in the ugly mm -hmm. sense, you know, yeah, yeah. he is. I mean, individual figures rally people's emotions in the same way that gods and immortals do, and this you know kind of goes back to the heart of our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And and even though we've seen that so destructively, that there is something inspiring about that. I mean, certainly for magic people, certainly mm -hmm. for magical thinkers, and there is a certain element of um, the superhero mythos to that, and the sense that. Um, you know, there there has been, a, in a sense, a vindication of the great man of history theory, where you know, I, you, I agree. You know. There's just no question about that in my mind. Yeah, and I think um, Philip Roth, the novelist, uh, died several years ago, had a really great grasp on that. He wrote uh, 
of the novel, The Plot Against America, was made into an right, HBO right, miniseries right. about a fictional Charles Lindbergh winning the presidency, and it was seen as a, a, a terrifyingly vivid portrait of what right-wing populism would look like in America, especially at a profoundly uh, propitious and sensitive moment. And uh, forgive me, uh, uh, anybody for whom this is a spoiler uh, uh, alert, but at the end, uh, Lindbergh is killed. Uh, a, 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 a plot is launched, hatched against him, apparently successfully, and he's killed. And things change, and they change dramatically, not because human nature has changed, not because some dramatic event has occurred, like the you know on the scale of the invasion of Normandy, but because one person has been removed from the picture, and that can change the historical picture enormously. And and Roth sensed that, and I do think that the so-called great man theory uh, has been vindicated. Yeah, and and that's both frightening and exciting in a way. And I, I yes. think it, it. I agree. I agree. We we may be living through it right now. You know, yeah. everybody's biting their nails, wondering what's Trump going to do next. What's Trump going to do next? Well, I have no idea, but right. but but maybe in six months he's not going to be on the scene anymore. Yeah, you know, I have no idea. And then. We have a, a whole new weather system. We have a whole new ecosystem. Yeah, I don't think it's it's probably it's I, I don't think it's even necessarily worthwhile even speculating about that because we don't know. I mean, it was so interesting. I'm sure you remember the I don't necessarily want to go so far as to call it arrogance, but maybe I should, you know, prior to the election, you remember the extent to which there really was a feeling that it was it wasn't just the end of history that in a sense it was the end of history for the democratic party it was like we just mm-hmm. had it buttoned up and i mean specifically <laughs> it's like look you know like obama was had two terms is great we got weed gay marriage it's awesome right. but you, but what i mean specifically is like the kind of nate silver approach or like the quantification mm-hmm. of reality where it's like well the metrics say yeah. and uh it's like we just like you know the machines tell us what's real and then like i you i remember sitting there watching the Nate Silver graphs on election night and just watching them suddenly diverge. Yep. And it's just like, whoa, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> you know? Absolutely so. wild. Absolutely wild. Is the, And is this an egregore? Is this a tulpa? Is this, you know, what? what is this? Did we all create this? Were we upending something? I think so. People need to take a little bit of responsibility to the extent to, the, the extent to which this was a group effort. Because I think the whole, obviously, okay, I mean, at the most basic level, like, people love Trump. Mm-hmm. They love him on the left. They mm-hmm. love to think about him. They love to obsess about him. He gets free real estate in their heads, despite all the real estate that he has. It's like, people, he's like the, you know, it's like the kayfabe in wrestling. He's like, he's like the bad guy they love right. to hate. You talked about pro right. wrestling. It's like, the amount of attention, and mm-hmm. to the point of worship, that people mm-hmm. on the left have put into that ridiculous individual. It's just like, yeah. just ignore him, you know, <laughs> but no, no, it's like people love, they love to think about that guy. And I think that there's also an element with Trump of the, you know, we're talking about how great it was in the Obama era. There, there's such a self-destructive element of, I'm sure, you know, the book escape from freedom there oh, sure. from, but sure. just, just, just like, you know, it's like the point he makes in that book is, you know, the reason fascism happens is because people don't like the feeling of being free and having choices and things being okay. Mm-hmm. They need authoritarianism. It's like they they long for that and it's really sick. You know, mm-hmm. so I think there there's some element that is just there was this group they just wanted, you know, bad dad or something like that. Well, it's interesting. You know, the charisma of Trump is really extraordinary. I people what people sometimes make fun of in him is actually shrewdness that they're not picking up on. They're not detecting. Yeah. Like, 
sometimes the language that he'll use, these monosyllabic terms, you know, it's very sad, it's very bad, yeah. it's not good. And, you know, I, I, I mean, it's, it's, that's compelling. That's memorable. He's a and great I speaker. Remember, um, I was talking to somebody once, uh, 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 somebody who was on a tech crew of one of his reality shows. It was maybe The Apprentice or something else. And this guy was telling me, this wasn't long ago, this was just a few months ago. This guy was telling me that people said, um, you know, whatever you do, you know, don't talk to Trump, don't talk to Trump. And, and he, it was his last day on the set, and they were both online actually to eat at the, on, at whatever the commissary setup was. You know, there was Trump. And he said, well, fuck it, you know, it's my last day. I'm just going to go up and talk to him. And they started talking to him. And um, the guy was wearing a t shirt with some punk band on it. And he said to me, the Trump said to him, uh, I love punk rock. And he said, you do? And Trump said, yeah, sure. The Ramones. And, you know, and he said, he is charismatic as hell. And, wow. you know, you have to, you have to just deal with that. You have to deal wow. with that. Wow. That's, yeah. that's really funny. Yeah. 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 He I remember, up. um, yeah. I remember when, uh, I think right after he, or when he was running, I was just at the library and I went and picked up some of those books that he wrote with Robert Kiyosaki. And uh, the first page I opened to, he was talking about the Kabbalah and Carl Jung. And I was like, the, the universe is a joke. It was like, be, it was like beyond the whole meme magic thing. It's like, like the guy is literally into this stuff, you know, hmm. it was just like, what, you know, it's like HP Lovecraft said, it's like the universe is a joke, right. the, you know, at the, uh, on behalf of the general at the, at the expense of the particular. So it was just like, what is going on between that and what you said about Bannon. Uh, he was supposed to set up an interview between me and Trump once. And oh, that would have been great. I said, that listen, just great. give me 15 minutes, you know, yeah. and I, I wanted to talk to him about these things, Norm Appeal, and he said, you got it, you got it, but never happened. There's time yet. Yeah, he hasn't eaten too much KFC yet. Right. Um, well... So yeah, so where do we go there from with Batman? I mean, that's those are just kind of my general my general thoughts on it. That there is this kind of way that you can take it of, uh, but I think that these these themes are obviously playing out in our society more than they were when the movies came out. I mean, even if you want to look at, I mean, we're talking about Trump and the possibility of election of reelection. If you want to think about him as this like destructive force for society, you, you have this realignment with you know, the Democratic establishment and people like Liz, uh, Liz Cheney or Mitt Romney, the kind of never Trumper side who were just kind of taking the, I, I suppose, the Bruce Wayne perspective, just like just preserve the status quo uh, at yes. all costs, you know, and they, they've, uh, you know, Biden's in there for now. And, and there's just people are kind of like clinging on for, for dear life to try to reestablish at least some semblance of order with the idea yes. that it may all get thrown into disarray again very shortly. It's and and I think I think these movies that we've been talking about, they 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 point to a, a a couple of general themes. One is it's really interesting for the individual, and I challenge your listeners to think about this in their own lives. It's really interesting for the individual to ask, you know, what songs, works of art, and such are those that mirror back to me exactly what my highest ideals are, and maybe some of these ideals are things that the individual is hiding from, you know, him or herself. And uh, maybe watching these movies, one does feel a, a deep pangs of sympathy for Bane or Rachel Ghoul or what have you. And these are threads worth following. And also the extent to which these works of art not only have posterity, but they, they, they convey truth. They have mirrored back to us everything that's happened on a epic large scale in our culture right now. And they also mirror back, as you were referencing to your own experience 
in watching Batman Begins intimate things in our lives as well. Yeah, I feel that all great art does that to some extent because I think that great artists can touch on things that people... It's not just things that people have in common. It's the things they have in common at a really deep level that they may not even be conscious of. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that these movies will definitely stand the test of time. Maybe as, as, as an epilogue too, did you see the Joker movie? I feel like we should at least briefly touch on that. I what did. did you think of that? Because that was at least like in, in conversation with these movies. Well, I thought it was brilliant as an homage, of course, to the 1970s crime films of you know Scorsese and, and, and other directors who... And, and I think, obviously, that movie developed a, a theme of the Joker as an anarchic hero that was um, present in The Dark Knight, but it developed it more fully. Um, I suppose, to my tastes, you know, you were referencing, you were describing the Batman movies as the closest thing possible to Batman being real. Mm -hmm. And I've described the original Dark Shadows television show as the closest thing possible to vampires being real. <laughs> nice. I remember my ex-wife used to say to me, you're, you're right, because it's actually so boring. Nothing actually ever happens. This is what <laughs> life would be like if vampires so were real. Boring. It takes a half hour to somebody walk across the room. And, um, I haven't thought about that for a while. That's such a, a, like a touch point for occult people of a, of a certain oh, generation. Absolutely. Yeah. And I suppose for my personal taste, I wanted a little bit more of cape and costume in the in the Joker movie. But that's just speaking uh, of me as, as an individual. Interesting. I, um, I thought that uh, what's I'm suddenly blanking on the actor's name that played the Joker. Oh, uh, Joaquin, uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Phoenix. Thank you. But, yeah. um, I thought that that performance specifically was like one of the great performances ever like I, mm -hmm. I i think that is taken outside of even the context of the script which was like I, i'd say like a seven out of ten maybe six or seven out of ten um but him specifically like his performance was unbelievably good it was like you know iggy pop paganini mm -hmm. it was like all this stuff in there but like klaus kinski maybe but at the same the thing that struck me about it so much outside of the sheer physicality of it uh, and the sheer uncomfortableness of it. That movie is really uncomfortably yes. uncomfortable to watch simply because it, it, is, it depicts uh, mental illness very well and how yes. how bad it is. Um, so it's it's hard for me to watch that movie. But the thing that struck me about his performance that I realized after watching it for a while is that it's like every tick he does or like every beat even of a word or, or a sentence is totally not in conversation with the one previous, if hmm. that makes sense. It's like every little motion or thing that he does is completely disconnected from the prior one. That's very interesting. I'll, I'll have to watch it again and watch for that. That's fascinating. It's like, it's like nothing holds together. That's like, there's no executive function there. That's fascinating. Yeah. It That's was fascinating. Yeah. When I realized that I was like, how do you even do that as an actor? That's fascinating. Like, I don't even know how, watch that. how it's how it would be possible to do a performance like that. Intentionally. It was incredible when I realized that. So for that reason, I think that that is an all-time great uh, performance. The movie itself, um, the one thing that I think is worth mentioning in context to what we've been talking about, you 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 know you, you touch on this idea that maybe maybe we're the last generation to. Um, you know, or a certain generation are like the, are, are never going to think of this idea of America as this monolithic good guy ever again. Mm -hmm. 
And I think, unfortunately, that's true. And I think that's why Top Gun, the new Top Gun movie was so successful. I mean, it's, it crossed a billion dollars almost immediately. And it's a great, you know, it's like, it's, it's like unfound. I mean, it's a great, I don't know how you felt about it. I thought it was, I haven't seen it yet. It's, oh, oh, it's great. It's on my list. It's great. Okay. So no, no spoilers then. Uh, it's really good. Well, but, I just ruined something for everybody before. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. But unfortunately, people are more likely to watch Top Gun than read Philip right, Roth. Right. I, I hate to say. But um, the, uh, I think the reason why it was so successful is people just wanted to feel that again. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they, they wanted to feel that triumphant. Like I was describing somebody, like I was talking to somebody who's much younger than me and I was, I was trying to just, we watched Top Gun and I was trying to describe to her what, what it was like seeing that the first time. And it was like, okay, you, you know what Top Gun, like the eighties were like, like imagine you're peaking on cocaine. Like you're, you're on a cocaine binge and just like everything is awesome. The music's great. Everything's really colorful. And just like right at the, you just hit the very peak and like that was Top Gun and like all the F-16s like taking off, you know, F-14s mm-hmm. taking off. It was just like, it's like, like the peak of the American Coke binge. And of course it was all downhill from there. But for yes. that one moment, it was just like totally transcendent. And so right. I think that like for Top Gun 2, people wanted to uh, feel that again. And it was, honestly, it was great feeling it that, uh, feeling that again. And, and sometimes it's great to just pretend that it was real. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, even if we know it, it wasn't. And um, but but with Joker, Joker was a movie that clearly if it was either for or deeply resonated with Zoomers. It was for a much younger generation. Yes. It was a movie about just to- like just total chaos. There was no mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. Dark Knight movies are about like there's this sense of trying to shore up or preserve some sense of order where yes. the Joker is just, you know, total. uh descending into just like just total chaos and not just descending into it but just that being your native state and they're not and, being anything uh, else we see bruce in that movie of course as a kid and alfred and thomas wayne are kind of thugs alfred almost seems like yeah. this this slightly sketchy character who sure is there to protect the kid but 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 he seems like an unpleasant kind of teeth bearing uh thuggish figure and and thomas wayne doesn't seem much better and it's fascinating that you know, we're not given the comfortable uh, uh, cloak of warmth around Bruce Wayne in that movie, and we don't know where he's going to go as that series develops. That's the thing I'm personally most interested in. Yeah, and he's obviously just a spoiled plate as a spoiled rich kid. and Right. And, um, and that was interesting, too. And that, that actor, I forget his name, is the actor that played Alfred, um, often plays... Um, plays heavies. He yeah. plays heavies, yeah, and I think he plays heavies in Marvel movies. Um, and but you see, like you know, like the appeal to Zoomers, like you see, like you know, the, just the pure hatred of of anything perceived as wealth. I mean, you see that you know reflections of how like Zoomers, for instance, talk about Elon Musk or or Jeff Bezos there. Um, but the you know, and it's like, I don't know if you interact with Zoomers a lot, but it's like, you know, I, I talk to them a lot and they, they have, they use Jokerfied as, as kind of, as an actual term, you know, it's like for them, oh, right? for them becoming Joker, <laughs> for them becoming Jokerfied just means like just completely giving up on any semblance of anything and just like, just playing everything as like chaos. And uh, I actually really like that. I like Zoomers. I, I I feel like I have a lot, you know, my, my nineties goth edgelord comes out when I talk to them. Uh-huh. <laughs> So, but I think that as a political statement, that is, that, that is a message that resonates with a much younger generation rather that is not, 
is not um, burdened with this idea of having to uphold this dying thing. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it may be gone. We really don't know. It's a little too early to say. And the death of American innocence has been proclaimed before, and it was apparently wrong. Vietnam was supposed to end American innocence. 9-11 was supposed to end American innocence. Trump is supposed to end American innocence. And who knows? Who sure. knows? You know, I, I mean, unless you, unless you take all those things as one ongoing process, essentially. One ongoing process. It yeah. could be, you know, I mean, we may be looking at an unraveling of the entropy of, of the, the bargain that was struck with the Marshall Plan post-World War II. Uh, maybe entropy is real, and, and maybe oh. this is a process of entropy that we're looking in, and our Vedic brothers and sisters call it the Kali Yuga, and this is what we're in. So so then you, you, you agree with Ra's al Ghul, perhaps? Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we've been talking for two hours. This is a good and great podcast. What do you? I, I don't know. Did we? Did we touch everything? Did we sufficiently wrap everything up? I don't know. I, I mean, we, there's, so. there's I a lot to talk about. Up. Archetypes, art, the Kali Yuga, <laughs> initiation, the left hand path. Whether you have a dog or I'm imagining. Things, oh, you know. I think sure. No, it's a it's a stray coyote. Um, <laughs> well, one wait, just as the last bit, just to take it to the very back to the very first thing that mm -hmm. you said, you related Batman with Dracula, which oh, I, yeah. I haven't thought about. And I was thinking about that after you said that, that Batman, I think, is a more lasting archetype than Dracula and definitely more than Frankenstein, which is a forgotten yes. archetype completely or, or the mummy, which they tried to bring back with Brendan Fraser or the mm -hmm. Wolfman. Those are mm -hmm. those those have not had staying power. I think Dracula zombies has. and Batman have staying power. Yeah. That's that's what delivers. And, yeah. You know, video games are are our case in point. And I, I think and it's 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 so interesting because we uh, both those genres, zombies and Batman, to a degree Dracula, but especially zombies and Batman, they really had these bare bones stick figures origins. So the original Batman comics, you know, very, very to the bone, terrifying and weird and wonderful in their way, but, 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 but not lush and lavish storytelling. It's only as time passes that more flesh gets put on the bone. And then, of course, you have the original zombie movie in the form of Night of the Living Dead. And George Romero spends year after year, interview after interview, insisting that he he had no social intent whatsoever mm -hmm. behind the movie. Finally, I started believing him, but it was it was too late, you know. And 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 it was the viewer who brought the perception of social intent. And then the story kept getting developed more and more and more. And it's just fascinating the interaction between the artist and, and audience. It's almost like the two of them are building one another you know across generations definitely all right well parting thoughts and also you're doing talks again and you have a new book out so you should definitely I tell have a people new where book to out find called that daydream believer and uh it's my fullest most direct stark reckoning with the question of the powers of the mind can thought make things happen and if so, what are the implications of that? What are the problems with that? And how do we respond when that gambit apparently fails? And so I really, really try to go to the bone in that book. And I try to be as transparent as I can possibly be about my own experiences in ways that will hopefully give other people insights and methods and possibilities. And so I'm, I'm excited about that book. And yes, I'm starting to do live talks again. I'm going to be in Los Angeles uh, the weekend of July 23rd for uh, Masonic Con at your old stomping ground and at the Philosophical Research Society, my first talk there since uh, before the lockdown began. Wow. So, well, yeah. Momentous then. Great. Um, 
yeah, it's a weird time post-COVID. I hope that goes really well, and, and I'm sure it will. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, I will definitely check out Daydream Believer, and everyone should as well. All right, this was great. Um, I think that I would call this a success. We should definitely do this again. For sure. I'm All happy right. to. Okay, great to see you, Mitch. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that show. Check out our new class, Why Magic Start Here, at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. It gives you everything you need to get started, including a new free meditation. It's awesome. I will see you in class, and I will see you next time.